Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God, the one who gathers us in faith to share these moments of worship, the one who guides our lives through his word, be and abide with you this day. Amen. Today in our series of messages based in the epistle of James, we've reached this latter part of chapter 3 and um, much of chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at that text with the idea of be humble. Be humble. Sometimes when we talk about humility at our house, we have an ongoing joke where I'll tell Paula, I'm the best at that. I'm the best at being humble. So good at humility. I learned this word recently, humble brag. Have you heard that one? A humble brag is when you intentionally say something that starts to sound humble, but ends up like, intentionally saying something that you want people to know. Maybe you've heard a humble brag before. Here's some examples. I'm so stressed since my promotion, I've even lost 10 pounds. Wow. Okay. Here's another one. I need some advice. I don't know what to invest in next. My portfolio is diversified and my 401k is maxed out. What do you think I should do? Like, okay. That's, uh, that's a humble brag. The neuro response that we have to talking about ourselves is apparently the equivalent of eating or physical intimacy. So, like, that's why social media has this addictive quality about it. Even though we're not speaking about ourselves, it's kind of similar. We're all, in a lot of ways, um, turned in on ourselves, narcissistic. We, we like to think about ourselves, talk about ourselves. We want other people to know about us. And so it can be good and helpful in a conversation when we can relate to one another, but it can oftentimes turn into humble brag or just plain leave the humble off. Right? So we can talk about the problem of pride. It's okay to be proud when it's framed well and correctly. Like, I can be proud of my kids for the accomplishments that they've done. I can be proud of myself as long as that's framed well. Right? It's okay to be proud. The problem is pride. And the related words, they sound awfully similar, and they are connected to the same kinds of thoughts and emotions. But being proud... In a moment, for an event, for a circumstance, for an accomplishment, is okay. It's when we become overwhelmed by that. See, the thing is, ambition is admired, right? If you're the boss and you're going to interview someone who's a potential employee, who are you looking for? The person who says, well, I like to take a long lunch, and I'll accomplish, you know, a decent percentage of the work that you give me. Meh. I'm probably r right around average as a worker. That's probably not the person that gets the job, right? It's the person that sits down and, it, like, I want to accomplish great things and I want to do things for the company, right? Many times in an interview, there's strengths and weaknesses that are talked about. I remember having a summer job. So 
my undergraduate degree is in engineering, and one of the jobs I had in the summer was with some other engineers. And we were talking about, well, I'm, I'm going to graduate, and when I do, I'll be you know, probably going through interview processes, anticipating that you know, position I hope to land at graduation. And he said, well, they're going to ask you about strengths and weaknesses. What do you tell them? Well, you know, here's some strengths, here's some things I do well, and I don't know, how many of my weaknesses should I talk about? He said, here's what you do. When they ask you about weaknesses, tell them things like you're overly ambitious. That you don't have patience for when other people are slowing down the process. It just really is aggravating for you because you want to accomplish so many great things. I think I might have tried it, actually. I didn't get that job. Ambition is admired. Success is celebrated. If you look at the who's who of business leaders, there are names that we all know. Jeff Bezos. You know who that is. Elon Musk. You know who that is. At least probably the vast majority of us know those names right away. We know who Larry Ellison is. There's a pantheon of politicians on both sides of the aisle whose names we know because they've won elections. But we don't remember the people who also ran, right? And maybe we do. Sometimes we remember. We remember who lost a lot of the presidential elections, for example. But do you know who lost the state assembly for your local district a couple elections ago? No. We don't know who that was. Maybe if we saw the sign again, right? Because, you know, those political signs are somewhere in the gutter under the tree where they got blown by the wind and, you know, four years later somebody finally pulls them back out. And along with those yellow bags of litter that got picked up, maybe you'll see a political sign that looks kind of familiar. Because a couple of elections ago, that was one of the signs that you saw. But we don't remember those names. We don't know who those people are because we don't celebrate mediocrity even in a time when everybody gets a trophy. You don't even have to be successful to be remembered, though. You don't have to have great accomplishments if you're ambitious enough to get into the public eye. You can be remembered even just for that. Ambition is admired, but our passions can create problems, and James touches on that. Being passionate can be a really great thing if our passions are aimed well. Maybe you're passionate about marginalized people. Maybe you're passionate about animal rescue or refugee help. Those are great things to be passionate about, and the list can go on and on of things that are great to be passionate about, where the passion is focused on someone who needs assistance or something that needs to be solved. But passion turned inward can be harmful, and James talks about that at the beginning of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, maybe we've not murdered. But haven't we been jealous? Haven't we... Maybe thought ill of someone who was successful. Maybe haven't, haven't we 
coveted, been jealous, sought to kind of keep up with the Joneses in that way because, well, our culture continues to emphasize this, get all you can from life. Greed is good. There's a line from a movie that was released in 1987, Wall Street, if you remember that character, Gordon Gecko. But a similar statement was made by economist Milton Friedman in a piece written for the New York Times more than 50 years ago, that the social responsibility, this is the title, of business is to increase its profits. And this is the culture in which we live, and the article that Friedman wrote describes how corporations making profits can give those profits to the shareholders, and then the shareholders can do the social things that they want to do support the causes they want to support. But when the corporation shifts to, toward the causes and supporting different um, entities, that's when they're getting their core business wrong. So their core business is to make profits, and they should do that so that their stakeholders, their shareholders, can be the ones to do the good. Makes sense? Makes sense. In the practical side of it, though, that's complicated. James 3, so we back up a couple verses into chapter 3. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And isn't that where we live? Isn't that common in our zip codes? Isn't that frequent in our observation and our experience? And hasn't that even affected us in the way that we live our lives and the things that we do? That we pursue our own goals and objectives and dreams, which, like I said, can be a good thing. But if those goals and objectives and dreams that we have are focused on ourselves and our lives and what we want to get out of it, it can turn south. Greed, pride, and ambition, hallmarks of society and culture, affect us. But we look today not to the ambition of culture, but to the humiliation of Jesus. The humiliation of Jesus. Jesus understood the mission he was on. What plan would you want to follow? You know, we talked about this from the employer side of it, the you know, ambitious interviewee versus the mediocre one. What kind of leader do you want to follow? One who is going to be pursuing the, the goal, our common good, right? Doing the things that it takes to take charge. Kicking butt and taking names is often the way we like to think about it. The conquering hero is someone whom we would want to follow versus someone who's doomed to fail. Who would want to follow that leader? But this is what Jesus is talking about. The Son of Man is going to enter Jerusalem with an army, will storm the palace, overthrow and occupy the powers that be, and take our nation back. Doesn't that sound like the kind of phrase that the disciples could get behind, right? Right? Instead, what does he say? This is in Mark 31. 
uh, sorry, Mark 9, verse 31. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now, the resurrection part sounds good, but when you listen to the first part, do you even hear that after three days? You probably hear he'll be turned over into the hands of men, especially if you're the follower, you're in the group of people who's going along with Jesus. And so when you hear things like the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So so a captive? Under the control of other people? This is our guy. Hmm. Delivered into the hands of men who will decide his fate, and he already knows what their decision is. Wow. But this is the track that Jesus is on, and he understands that mission. He already knows where he is going. The Son of God, who speaks of himself as the Son of Man. Jesus died for us. Philippians chapter 2. Words I alluded to in our absolution for today. At verse 8 says this, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a theological term, the humiliation of Christ. When we hear the word humiliation, a lot of times we'll think of embarrassment. Right? What was that humiliating moment, your, your most humiliating experience? That's not the same humiliation that this theological term uses. The humiliation of Christ is, think of God, second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He's God. He's omni-everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, seated at the right hand of God, the whole deal, right? He's all that. And yet, he humbled himself. He took on humanity, like just the incarnation is humility for the all-powerful king of the universe. You know, what if one of those CEOs that we talked about before, they've got that undercover boss show, I don't know if that's still on or not, but maybe you've seen it, where the CEO, like, goes to work and, you know, gets all the whole disguise on and shows up for work and is like a janitor, a guy working in the cafeteria or something, right? Some kind of, like, factory, he's on the assembly line. And the, the idea is, here's the undercover boss, so he can hear what the employees are talking about. He can, you know, so this is the guy who has the corner office and maybe has, you know, the best parking place and, I mean, for some of these guys, you know, the planes and the helicopters and the whole thing. And a staff of people and maybe a personal chef, and we don't know what they all have, but... He's got the pretty cush life. And he's showing up maybe with the lunch pail and the half hour to eat it. Right? And he learns some things. And he hears from his employees what that's really like to live that way. Well, the all-powerful king of the universe showed up in this disguise, humbled himself to become one of us, like you and me, in humanity fleshy, living in this world. And his ambition wasn't to come and conquer, but to conquer death in the grave by his sacrifice on our behalf. 
That's his ambition. That's his purpose. And he was pursuing that purpose even when it didn't make sense to anybody else because it was his passion for you and for me. So the humiliation of Christ is the incarnation, his birth, his life in the flesh, his suffering and death on our behalf. That's the humiliation of Jesus. And by his humble death, he accomplished the payment for our sin, the sacrifice for our selfishness, the atonement for our attitudes. And he calls us, rather than to follow the world's way, instead always be humble and kind. I think there's a country song with those lyrics. My, my wife's nodding. She's the fan of the country music, so I can always check country lyrics with her. Always be humble and kind. It's a country lyric, but it's a biblical concept. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's in James chapter 4, at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Back up a couple verses before that, and verses 8 and 9 is talking about our confession. The things that we bring before the Lord to cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, mourn and weep. Now, God doesn't want us to go through life mourning and weeping all the time. But when we have hands that need to be cleansed, hearts that need to be broken, lives that need to be amended to become more like Jesus, then we are called on to humble ourselves because he wants to set us free. It's in that humility that we receive his grace. It's on bended knee that he speaks his atonement over us, that he forgives our sin and gives us more grace, as verse 6 says. So receive his grace humbly. humbly. Humble yourself before the Lord and have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, which is really the whole humiliation and exaltation, that's the other side of that coin. Humiliation of Christ and exaltation of him, because at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That's in Philippians chapter 2 as well. But in there, in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The New International uh, translates that, have the attitude of Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Think like Jesus. Feel like Jesus. So that we can live like Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. Be like Jesus. He made himself nothing. How can we make ourselves nothing? By setting aside our personal ambition, our personal pride, from, for, by, by looking for the good for the other, have that mind. A number of years ago, the, it was somewhat of a trend to have a bracelet or a shirt or maybe a hat that had WWJD on it. And then I think it was Volkswagen, it might have been somebody else. What would Jesus drive um, was how they adapted that. Okay. What would Jesus do? Maybe HWJT. How would Jesus think? Before we can get to the what would Jesus do, we have to understand how Jesus would think. What's the mind of Christ? 
be transformed by the renewal of your mind, to quote Paul from elsewhere. Think like Jesus, have that mind, have that attitude of Christ, and be the greatest. Wait, we're talking about humility. How can we say be the greatest? Well, Mark 9, Jesus has predicted his passion, and right away after that is when the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. It's an interesting um, juxtaposition of those pieces. Like Jesus is talking about going and being arrested and crucified. And then the disciples are like walking along like, ah, I'm the greatest. Or maybe they're voting for other people. I don't know how it worked. But they don't want to answer Jesus when he starts to call them on it, which I think is just hysterical, right? So Jesus asked them, what were you talking about? And, and we know, right? We know he already knows. Because, again, all-powerful, omni, omniscient, you know, king of the universe. When he asks you a question, chances are he's not actually asking you the question. He doesn't need you to tell him. <laughs> he knows. They wouldn't answer So he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So in other words, follow Jesus' example. Be last of all, be servant of all. How can you serve in your community? How can you serve in your family? How can you serve in your neighborhood? How can you serve in the church? There's a number of servants in this congregation, and I am grateful People who put in lots of time, lots of effort, some of whom don't want to be recognized for it at all, which is great. That's serving with humility. That's doing what needs to be done without expecting accolades. Now, we can celebrate one another. We can thank each other. That's not a problem. We continue to be focused on the cross of Christ and sharing the message of hope that we have in Jesus. We can do it with humility, and we can be the greatest. The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a chapter later in Mark 10. So we can lay down our lives, our selfish ambition. We can be kind and compassionate. We can serve our Lord by serving our neighbor. We can be ambitious about accomplishing great things for Jesus. Be humble, be kind, be like Jesus. Amen.